We are going to dig into God's Word today. This is a passage that most of you are familiar with. Um, actually, it's one of the most controversial passages in all of Scripture, quite honestly, um, to the world. To the Christian, it's one of the greatest blessings. Um, and so, that is John 14. We would ask during um, the service that you please set your cell phones on stun. And, um, and if you do not have to get up during the service, uh, we ask that you don't. Um, because again, we're here to study the Word of God today, and this is something that we take seriously, and, um, and that's all I'm going to say about that. But we're going to start with John 14, and we're going to start at verse 1, and it reads like this, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may also be. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. But Thomas said to Him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Father, this may be a passage, these may be verses that some in here have heard countless times. Let us hear them through fresh ears. See them through fresh eyes. And let our heart be open to what you want to say in this room today. In Jesus' name, amen. A great artist knows how to use contrast to create appreciation for the objects that they're trying to focus on. They know how to use contrast. They know how to use colors really well. So if you take a beginning art class, perhaps you'll experience what I did. And what they will do is they will have your first object be a fruit bowl. All right, it's a fruit bowl. So what they'll do is they'll put the fruit bowl there. They'll put an apple. They'll put a banana. They'll put an orange. They'll put a pear. And they'll put grapes. And it's your job to capture the essence of that and bring it out in a way that will stick out to the people that you're presenting it to. And one of the important things when doing that that I learned was that they said that perhaps you should make the fruit bowl a little darker. Why? What does it matter? You make this fruit bowl darker because if you can make the fruit bowl a little bit darker, then what will happen is it'll bring out the colors of the apple. It'll bring out the redness of the apple, the uh, yellow of the banana, the orange of the... Orange, thank you. Yeah, the orange of the orange. The greenest of the... But you get the point. All right? So it's like the dark colors will contrast, and a good artist knows that. That the dark colors... Well, if you want to use contrast, that the objects that you want to focus on will be accentuated by the use of dark and light. So, too, God in creation, He uses adversity, and He uses darkness to create the desire and the appreciation for aspects of his person and his power to display it, right? How many of you have been through dark situations and through those dark situations, what you found was that there was something about God's character that just stuck out, that just revealed itself, and that's what we've seen. So through your darkness, through the adversity, through the ugliness, God brings out the light and the victory, and the beauty in a way that only He can do. Now, this is true throughout Scripture, what I'm talking about. It's true from the very beginning in creation where we read in Genesis 1, and it reads very simple like this. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, darkness is what? Darkness is most simply defined is the absence of light, right? So there's the absence of light, and so what does God say? Let there be light. Lo and behold, there it is. 
So that's from the very beginning. So we see that even in creation, against the backdrop of darkness, what happens is, is that he introduces the idea of light. Now, when he's going to introduce judgment and flood out the world through the days of Noah, well, he also shows us in that moment, through that darkness, through that adversity, what does he do? He shows us his deliverance, and he shows us his salvation through that same picture. We see it in the life of Jesus. In the book of John, we see that there's a man born blind, and there's that adversity in the darkness, and Jesus opens up his eyes. We see it at the grave of Lazarus when everybody is gathered around, and they're mourning, and there's death, and there's disappointment, and when he raises Lazarus to life, all of a sudden the lights come on, there's life, there's joy, and there's hope. Because that's what he does. That's who he is. He uses darkness. He can use adversity no matter what it is that you're going through. He can use it in your life to reveal himself in a greater manifestation, to show his power in a greater way. That's our God. That's why the book of John is so captivating. In John 13, what we see him do is to get on his hands and knees and wash his disciples' feet when he knows his hour is come, when he knows his time is up. We see him last week in the middle of Judas leaving to betray him, and right before he's about to predict that Peter's going to deny him, what does he do? He gives us a verse that says, listen, I'm giving you a new commandment. Love others as I have loved you. And that accentuates the teaching of love. When I was volunteering over at Sloan Kettering, first death I experienced was that of a 12-year-old boy named Jonathan Campbell who was dying of a rare cancer. And I'll never forget sitting at his bedside the young man saying, you know, John, I'm worried about my parents. I'm worried about who's going to take care of them when I'm gone. I've come to terms with what's happening. At 12 you did? At 12 years old you did? You came to terms with it? And as I'm sitting there, that message is resonating with me in adversity. Because if somebody was doing well and they said, take care of my parents, that's not a big deal. But when you have a 12-year-old and that 12-year-old is dying of cancer and he looks at you in the face and he says... I want my parents to be taken care of. Wow. So it's through that adversity, it accentuates, it highlights the importance of the message being given. And that's what we have again today. It's Jesus in the face of the greatest adversity one could imagine. What we're going to see is he tells his disciples something very simple. Let not your hearts be troubled. Their hearts troubled? And that's why we've called this message Bridge Over Troubled Waters. Bridge Over Troubled Waters. We're going to make three points in this message. They're all going to come from verse 1. All right? Then the third point, everything that we get from there is going to expand on the third point for the rest of the passage. So there are going to be three points. And the first thing that we're going to take a look at is chapter 14, verse 1, where he says, Let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. And we'll just stop right there. He knows what is going on in his disciples' hearts. He knows that these guys that have seen the victory, though they've seen adversity, they've seen him face contention at every turn, they've seen this contention and challenge at every turn that Jesus has faced, but they've seen him overcome. They've seen him walk on the water. They've seen him calm storms. They've seen him feed multitudes. They've seen all this, but now they're getting thrown a little bit. Wait a second. Jesus just told them that Judas had left to betray him. Peter is going to deny that he even knows him. The disciples are uneasy at this moment, and he knows that they're troubled. So he says this simply, let not your hearts be troubled. This is the first point, and it's a simple one. God knows what's troubling you. God knows what's troubling you. He knows your concerns. He knows them so well. He knows that there's a bill that needs to be paid right now. And not only do you not have the money, but you don't have a job. He knows that some of you are going through that. He knows some of you have family conflict right now, and the family is like this, and there's disarray, and there's, and there's all sorts of animosity and ugliness. He knows that. He knows your trouble. He knows that. There's no part of it that he doesn't know. Don't think he doesn't. Not for a second. He knows the adversity you're facing at every turn. Just as he's walking with the disciples and he can see the troubled look in their face. He can, he's sitting with them at the table and he can see the troubled look in their eyes. And just as he was physically with them, so too, as you're sitting in this church today, 
He knows what you're going through, man. He knows what you're going through. There's no aspect of your trouble that has gotten past him, that has gotten away from him, where you could look at him and say, God, did you miss that? Did you see what just happened to me? Yeah, he saw it. And for whatever reason, he has allowed it. Whether we brought it on ourselves or just the fact that we're living in a fallen world, he knows your troubles, he knows my troubles intimately. He knows those of you that are worried about the health of a loved one. He knows everything about what you're going through. He knows your concerns about the future. He knows them. And now if He knows them, let me ask you something. For a second, do you think that He's sitting on the throne of heaven looking at my situation right now going, I don't know what John's going to do about that. Michael, Gabriel, Jesus, let's have a powwow. Let's talk. Because John is in a situation. John's in a struggle. He's got a problem right now. And I didn't anticipate this. God anticipated it. He knew about it. He knows the trouble that you're going through. That's the first important thing that we see in this verse. Let not your heart be troubled. He acknowledges that there's trouble. Are you in trouble today? You have some troubles today? That's the first point. Second one is simpler. It says that God's desire is that what's troubling you doesn't trouble you. That's the second point. He says, let not your heart be troubled. That's the heart of Jesus. Talking to his disciples, those that he's walked with for three years, those that he loves, those that he's concerned about, he sees their heart. He sees the state of their heart. He sees what's burdening them, and he doesn't want them to be troubled. How many times in Scripture does he appear and he says, don't be afraid, fear not, you believe in God, believe also in me, is what he says here. He doesn't want, the heart of God doesn't want us to be troubled by the things that are troubling us. And you would say, well, pastor, that's a lot easier said than done. Right? It's easy for you to look at me and say, don't be troubled. It's easy for me to sit here and say, well, Scripture says, let not your heart be troubled. And it's very comforting to hear that God doesn't want me to be troubled through what I'm going through but it's a lot easier read and said than it is put into practice. Okay, I'll, I'll buy it. I'll buy it. I'll believe that God's desire is that what's troubling me doesn't trouble me. But if that's His desire, do something about it. Do something about it, Lord. Step into the situation. Intervene in the situation. Because you know this, is that trouble comes in all shapes and sizes, yes? It comes in all forms of intensities. It can be physical. It can be financial. It can be a little problem. It can be a great big problem. It can be one that completely overwhelms you. God knows about it. And it says here His desire is that our heart not be troubled. How do I know this? Well, He says it again back in the book of Matthew. So if you will, turn with me there for a second to Matthew 6. It's verse 25. And these are the words of Jesus in some of your Bibles. They are in red because they're His words. And He reiterates it here. Matthew 6, verse 25, He says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry. Saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. And this is it. This is the key He's about to give you. Alright, if we give you a point that says God's desire is that what's troubling you doesn't trouble you, 
Look at verse 33, highlight it, underline it, circle it, dog ear it, do whatever you have to. It says, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own thing. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Amen? Amen. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. He's saying, listen, (coughs) seek first the kingdom of God. Seek the relationship with me. His desire is that what's troubling you doesn't trouble you. It's said there are all sorts of Facebook memes that say this. Do you know that God says uh, at least 365 times in the Bible um, you know, for you not to be afraid? And the point of that meme is for them to say, well, God doesn't want you to be afraid ever. That every day he wants you to have the confidence to know that he's there and he doesn't want you to be troubled. He knows exactly what's going on in your life and he's saying to us today as we look at this passage, listen, it's my desire that the things don't trouble you. Look at all the other, look at how I've taken care of everything. Just take a look outside if you've forgotten. Open up your Bible if you, if, if you can't remember. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, and here's why he says this. It says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasseth all understanding, will, and this is the key, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Do you see the key? Do you see why he says, Be anxious for nothing? He says be anxious for nothing because when we put our fear in Him, what's going to happen is is that He's going to guard our heart and mind. How important is your heart to Him? That's my phone, by the way. (laughs) And yeah, it is the Mighty Mouse theme. But the point is this. Be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In other words, put them there, leave them there. Easier said than done. Because most of us pray like this, right? Most of us pray going, listen God, I'm broken now. I'm broken, and here's, here's what I'm doing. I'm giving all my struggles to you, Lord. And sometimes we'll do it through tears even. God, I'm so sorry for what I've done. Please take this from me. I'm giving all of it to you. I'm giving all of my struggle to you, God. Because your word tells me to do that. So I'm going to give you my struggle. Now I'm going to get off my knees. And as I'm getting off my knees, well, the thing that I was giving to him, here's what I do. I start to take it right back. I start to take it right back. No, no, no. What he wants to do is he wants to guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's what that verse in Philippians is talking about. That's the crux of that verse. Everybody takes a look and says, be anxious for nothing. That's important, yes. But the reason to be anxious for nothing is because he wants to protect your heart. He wants to guard your heart. He wants, to, he wants to take care of you. So he says, let not your heart be troubled. God knows what's troubling you. God's desire is that what's troubling you doesn't trouble you. And so whatever's troubling you, whatever it is you're afraid of, the Bible tells us 1 John 4.18, and if you don't have this memorized from being here, Take this one and put it in your memory bank. It's 1 John 4, 18, and it reads like this. And I want you to repeat this one with me, so listen to me say it. Perfect love casts out fear. Say it. Perfect love casts out fear. Let's say it again. Perfect love casts out fear. This is how it works, man. Because God loves you, all right, then you realize that there's nothing that you have to be afraid of because He's taking care of everything for you. But we forget, and that's why we need this. Because somewhere in the game, what happened was is that the enemy threw something at us, the opposing team threw something at us that we didn't expect. And when he threw something at us that we didn't expect, we responded in a way that we're used to responding instead of going to God with it. So we had to go back into the locker room. We had to get back into the church. We had to get back into the Word. We had to get back on our knees to remind us what the whole thing was about. That we don't need to be troubled because he doesn't want our hearts to be troubled. If there's something that's troubling us, then we're not giving him the control. And we're trying to take our control back. So what's the solution to it? Well, we've already started hinting at it by both of those passages. But he says here, Jesus says point blank in this passage now in verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. And here's the key, believe also in me. And in this moment, 
Jesus the Son is putting himself on equal playing field with God the Father. Listen, you believe in God, you've believed in God, but you've seen now what I can do. You've been walking with me for three years now. You've seen everything. You've, been, you've gotten the first hand. You've gotten the behind the scenes. You've seen the things that I can do. Peter, just a short while ago, said, you're the Christ, you're the Son of God. And so now Jesus is saying, listen, to alleviate your struggle, to alleviate your trouble, he says, you believe in God, believe also in me. I read a great meme on, again, Facebook the other day, which said, unbelief is the mother of every anxiety. Unbelief is the mother of every anxiety, and if that's the case, if unbelief is the mother of every anxiety, then we have to remember, who's a daddy? Who's your daddy? All right? If unbelief is the mother of every anxiety, then what we have to do is we have to put our faith in the one that loves us. This brings us to the third point. God is the solution to what's troubling you. So God knows what's troubling you. God desires that what's troubling you doesn't trouble you. But how do you do that? You realize that God is the solution that's tr- to what's troubling you. You understand this, is that your solution isn't to your problem necessarily. It isn't that your problem works out in exactly the way that you're thinking of, that you're imagining, that you're orchestrating up here. The key to it is understanding that your solution is a person. And that's where we blow it. That's where we blow it. And that's what that Matthew 6 is all about, isn't it? It says you seek first the kingdom of God. And what is the kingdom of God? It's the person of God. Seek me first. Seek the relationship with me first. And I'll put all the broken pieces of your life back together. That's what I do. That was what I specialized in. But here's what happens. When my trouble becomes greater than my God, I'm in trouble. Right? When my trouble is greater than my God, then I'm in trouble. But when my God is greater than my trouble, then my trouble's got trouble. Does that make sense? Then my trouble's got trouble. According to what we read, God is a person. God is a person. And we have this relationship with the person of the Holy Spirit. And that's why so often we're finding temporary, unsatisfying solutions. Have you found temporary, unsatisfying solutions? Problem is is that we haven't gone to Him. Stallone said it in a movie once. Stallone said to the criminal he was talking to, he said, you're the disease and I'm the cure. God says, listen, sin, separation from me is the problem. I am the solution. I am. How many times does Jesus say that phrase? And we're going to see it today in a great manifestation. But think, even when He tells you with temptation, He says, no temptation has overcome you except that which is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you can bear. He goes on to say that He is the way of escape. He's the way through the temptation. So be it your temptation, your trial, whatever it is that you're going through, what I want you to do is keep your place in John 14 for a second. Go over to the book of Psalms. Chapter 107. And there's something that the psalmist says here. Many of these psalms were written by King David who was the man after God's own heart. But one thing is consistent. He brings his troubles to God. Whenever whenever he writes a psalm, he brings it to God, and all the psalmists follow suit. That's what these books are about. So Psalm 107 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from the hand of the enemy and gathered out of the lands and from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south, they wandered in the wilderness in a desolate way. They found no city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted in them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. Listen, verse 6. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. Let's repeat it. Verse 6. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them out of their distresses. He delivered them out of their distresses and He led them forth by the right way. 
Now, what I want you to do is I want you to skip down to verse 10, because through the psalm, there's one theme that goes through this whole psalm. Now he says, those who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, bound in afflictions and irons, because they rebelled against the words of God and despised the counsel of the Most High. Therefore he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down, and there was none to help. Listen to verse 13. Listen, then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And you'll see this throughout the psalm in each paragraph, whatever situation that they're in, then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And that's what we're meant to do in our trouble. To go to the person of God. Because God is the solution to the thing that is troubling you. You see that throughout this psalm. What are you doing with your troubles? I know what some of you are doing. Some of you are going to Facebook. And the whole world knows about what's troubling you. The whole, all, the entirety of the world. You know, it's like for some of the guys, for some of our young guys, when Facebook first started, they would say, well, I posted something on Facebook, and I'd call them up, and I'd say, listen, what was that post about? They'd say, you saw that? I said, the entire world saw that when you put it on. Do you understand? All right, that's Facebook. That's social media. You're plastering your problems around there. Or instead of bringing your problems to God, you're taking them out on one another. And you're taking your problems out on one another instead of bringing your problems to God. Why? You're not going to change someone. Is there somebody that you're trying to change? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you. You aren't going to change them. It's the Word of God and His Holy Spirit that changes someone. Isn't that right, gang? It's the Word of God and His Holy Spirit my responsibility as a pastor is to love someone and give them God's Word. Sometimes that love looks like tough love. And there's God's Word that's given to them, but it's not my job, even if there's tough love practice, to change someone. That's not my responsibility. I couldn't take that if it was. I couldn't do this one more hour of one more day if it was my responsibility. It's the Holy Spirit. And so what we do with our trouble is we bring it to God. Cry out for that person that you're struggling with. One of the things that Oswald Chambers talks about in his devotional, My Utmost for His Highest, one of the things he talks about is how, you know what, when I'm having a problem with this person, I go to this person, this person, this person, this person, and this person. No. Then you're just wrecking the person's name. Let's not do that. Let's be different. He says, let not, he goes, cry out to God in your time of trouble for that person. When we see War Room, you'll get a great example of this in that movie on Thursday night. That's another pitch for the movie, by the way. Yeah, we're gonna do popcorn and uh, we're gonna do popcorn and we're gonna do grilled hot dogs. Yeah, that's right. All right, so we're gonna yeah we're gonna do all these things on Thursday night. But the the point of the matter is this: is that we fight our battle for one another on our knees. If you see me struggling with something, yes, bring it to me in love. But please fight for your pastor on your knees. Your pastor needs it. All right. So if ever your pastor asks for your prayers, right now, I'm going to make it clear. Yes, your pastor needs prayer. Your pastor's family needs prayer. My congregation needs prayer. You guys need prayer. All right. Bring the troubles to the Lord. If you identify a trouble in someone's life, before you bring that trouble to them, bring it to God. And if you don't bring it to God first, then don't bring it to them. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me, in my Father's house. And here's why we can. These are the implications of Jesus saying, you believe in God, believe also in me. Here are the implications. And the implications, quite honestly, are stunning. The implications of this passage and what he says are amazing. He says, listen, you believe in God, believe also in me. We're just going to take this apart little by little. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. All right? In other words, there's something better than what you're experiencing here. And whatever you're experiencing here that's bringing you down, there's something so much better. I remember as a child, I don't know if you've ever done this, but living, we moved down here in 1977. One of the things that my parents used to do, when I was just a pup, one of the things my parents used to do is take me down A1A. How many of you have ever taken a drive down A1A? All right. How many of you have ever said, you know what, for one night, I think it might be cool to stay in one of those houses? For one night, it might be cool to stay in one of those houses. All right, you take a look at those mansions, and we take a look. But here's the thing. It's like those mansions, what they, what they, what they represent, okay, we're, we're living in a two-story townhouse. All right, we're in a two-story townhouse. We're looking at that, and this guy in his front yard is the Atlantic Ocean. In his backyard is the Intracoastal Waterway. This is insane. 
And you're sitting there on this earth and you're saying, man, that's... But then you realize the truth of God's Word. Jesus told His disciples, in my Father's house there were many mansions. That's hope of something better than what this life has to offer. Listen, guys, I know you're troubled right now by the things that are going on, but the very first thing I want to coach you to do is to understand this, is that in my Father's house, oh, there are many mansions. Many mansions. In that room for many, in, in my Father's house there are many mansions. That room for mansions is used uniquely in this chapter and only in this chapter. And basically what it means is that it is a dwelling place, that He's our dwelling place. That's our hope. Our hope isn't in the, is in the fact that our destination is Him. That's one of the implications. You see, God is the solution to your trouble. You see, if you're in a place where you're hopeless right now, Jesus is telling the disciples, don't be so glum chum. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. So there's hope given. But He says also this. He says, if it were not true, I would have told you. And here's why that's cool, because that's honesty. This is the most honest book a person could ask for in a book of religion, okay? The Bible, the Word of God. It is very honest about its heroes. It doesn't hold David on a pedestal and say he never sinned in his life. He never messed up. He did. It doesn't put Moses on that pedestal, though the people will put Moses on the pedestal. It doesn't put Moses on a pedestal. It puts one person on a pedestal, and that's Jesus. Jesus is the one that is lifted up that is high and lifted up. If it were not true, I would have told you. And Jesus is always straight with the disciples. Matter of fact, through the times that He's walking with them, He's dead honest with them. Listen, here's what's going to happen. When we go into Jerusalem the last time, I'm going to be with you, and then they're going to take me. And they're going to kill me. But in three days, I'm going to rise again. He tells them this point blank, and yet when they're sitting there at the cross and He takes His last breath, they're all distraught and destroyed, and they've forgotten everything they've ever heard. So he knows he has to tell them. He knows he has to reiterate it to them. In my father's house there are many mansions. If it were not true, I would have told you. So he's reassuring them and he's giving them hope. And he's giving them honesty. This is an honest book. All right, It's well said um, that if you want to work an honest program, you don't have an honest program unless you have this book. This is the honest program. Okay? There is no honesty without this book because the one that you have to get right with is the living God that made you, that numbered the hairs on your head, that knows you better than anybody else, that will not co-sign on anything. That's Him. In my Father's house there were many mansions. If it were not true, I would have told you. Listen, He says, even now I go and prepare a place for you and I will come again and receive you to Myself that where I am there you may also be. And where I go you know and the way you know, stop right there. So you have hope that He gives them. In my Father's house there are many mansions. There's honesty. If it were not true, I would have told you. And even now I go to a place because I'm going to come again. I'm going to bring you back. And if we quoted Stallone, you can't quote Stallone without quoting Arnold who said, I'll be back. Jesus says, listen, I'm coming back for you to come get you. I'm coming back to come get you. Hope, honesty, and what you have is home. Home. How many of you have ever been in one of those jobs where all you feel like is that sometimes you're working for the weekend? There's even a song like that. Everybody's working for the weekend, right? All right, so you're working for the weekend. You're, going, you're working just so you can get to the vacation. You're working for, in school, it's for the summer. Okay, we can't wait till summer break that we have off. And you're working for that rest. And you're working for that rest. But, but here's the thing that I've discovered about vacation. When my wife and I, we go to our timeshare once a year in Vero Beach. They have drawers there and dressers and all that kind of stuff. I don't unpack my suitcase. Never. I never unpack my suitcase and put the stuff there. And here's why. Because it's not my home. It's vacation. It's an earthly vacation. It's not my home. And I don't want to be under the illusion that anything else other than my home is my home. And I don't even want to be under the illusion that the home that I'm living in in Lake Worth is my home. My home is heaven. I'm living on earth and we're sojourners and, and, and we're, we're journeying together on this because our destination, our final destination and our final home is what's been prepared for us. Jesus is saying, listen, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Doesn't that give you comfort? That He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you? What does He mean? Does Jesus, who most likely took on His Father's work that was a carpenter with hammer and nails, does it mean that He's banging away up in heaven? Wait, no. It means this, is that you don't go to heaven 
unless the place is prepared by his death on the cross so that you can go there and enjoy it because, again, our home is a person. Our home is a person. He's our hope. He's honesty. He's home. He says to them, he says, where I'm going you may also be and where I go you know and the way you know. Thomas, the doubter, said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going and how can we know the way? And basically what Jesus was trying to say was like, listen, you know the way because I am the way, but they weren't picking up on it. And so Jesus, in one of the most profound, craziest statements, insane statements in all of Scripture, says this. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Nobody gets there except by me. Let's break that down for a second. I am the way. He doesn't say, I'm one of the many ways you can get to heaven. There are quite a few ways you can get there, but let me sell you on this way. No. He doesn't say, I'm one of the truths. He doesn't say that. He says, the. It's a definite article. If you would have said, I am a way, a truth, a life, that's an indefinite article. This isn't an English lesson. It'll get more interesting in just a second. All right? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, usually what I used to do was I used to use a mathematical example, a very simple one. Two plus two equals four. Nobody questions that. It's just a math problem. Well, that is until the year 2012 when they come out with this thing called Common Core. And I want to show you what Common Core is, just so you understand this, how people are trying to co convolute and confuse things. Okay? This is 8 plus 5. Congregation, let's show your smarts. What is it? Come on. 85. No, it's, it's 13. Okay, thank you, Jeff. I didn't bring them up here. 8 plus 5 is 13. Okay? Now, here's how you do this in real life. Like, as a child, this is what we learned. 8 plus 5? Okay. 13. Maybe it took some of us a little longer than it took others. Here's how they do Common Core. Okay? So if you want to be a little confused, this is how your child is learning math today. What they'll do is they'll take the 8. They'll round it up to the 10 by 2. So 8 plus 2 equals 10. Now, what they'll do is they'll take that 2 and they'll subtract it from the 5. So what you have is now 5 minus 2 equals 3. Now here's what they'll do from there. They'll take this, they'll take the 10 now that you got up here, the 10 from that, plus the 3 equals 13. Now 8 plus 5 is 13. Is that messed up to anyone? Yes. It's common core. This is what your children are learning today. So instead of common core, we should say confusion central. Thank you, Jeff. You're welcome. All right. Confusion central. That's how your kids are learning math. And what are they trying to say? What's the statement? Here's the statement. That what used to be a clear way to 13, when I have to go here, you can go there, you can go there, but as long as you get to the right answer, and what happens is, is that the truth is getting all confused and messed up. That's what's happening in our society. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Let me ask you something. If you want to go to Disney World with us in August, here's what I want you to do. You follow us, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a right on I-95. We're going to go north. What I want you to do, if you want to join us, I want you to go south. <laughs> All right, if you want to go on vacation with us in August, I want you to go south. How long is it going to take you to get to Disney World if you go south on I-95? Wait a minute, you're saying that, that all roads don't lead to Disney World? Let me tell you, let me ask you, do all roads lead to God? Yeah, they do. They do. All roads lead to God, but all roads do not lead to His heaven. All roads lead to God because the Bible says in Romans 14 that every one of us will give an account of themselves before God, but only one way to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the way. What is he? He's the way to heaven? Yes. He's the way to heaven. He's the only way to heaven. But do you know that in this world that he's also the only way to happiness? 
He's the only way to happiness. The only way to find joy. He's the only way to right living. Let me tell you something else that happened in our society, and it was sadder than the math problem. Something that people believed for thousands of years concerning marriage and sexuality. People woke up one day, and all of a sudden, everybody was confused as heck. Everybody was confused. What, 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 what's the definition of marriage again? When, now there can be a man, there can be a woman, there can be woof, anything. Whatever you feel like being, you wake up and you are. Everybody that knows this word is not confused. Everybody that knows this word says in the beginning, when God created them, He created them male and female. And I know to some, what I'm saying may seem insensitive. It's not meant to come off that way. But truth is truth. This is God's Word. There's no play in it. He's the way to heaven. He's the way to holiness. He's the way to happiness. And I can tell you this from the perspective of somebody who tried different ways. I did the meditation. I, I read the books by Deepak Chopra, The Seven Spiritual Laws of Success. I went out to the bay in Long Island and I meditated. And as soon as somebody would come in Dad's store, I would come in and Dad was like, well, you're late to work today. I was like, I was meditating. That did not go over well. I was meditating. He goes, well, I hope you brought your Zen into work. Dad, I'm fine today. Somebody comes in and they're like, well, I don't like these poor cutlets. What? Are you kidding? All right, and it didn't work. I tried all sorts of different ways, and maybe you've tried all sorts of ways, and maybe the only time you found the way was when you went to the Word of God and you saw that there was a God that loved you and a Jesus that said, listen, don't be confused anymore. I am the way. I am the way. There's no play in what he says. People would look at you and they would say, well, listen, you found the way, but that's your way. That whole Jesus thing that you found, that's kind of like a crutch for you. Anybody ever told you that? That your Christianity is a crutch? I always ask them one question. What are you leaning on? What are you leaning on? Because we're all leaning on something. Let me ask you something. Has your crutch brought you the kind of love and joy and peace and sacrificed His life for eternity for you so that you could lean on that? What did your crutch do for you? He says, I am the way. He also says, I am the truth. We don't even want to go here today. He says, I am the truth. All right? We're living in the world of fake news. Yes? Okay? You have to watch a cross between the different news channels to try to figure out what's going on. All right? So you watch the conservative channel. Then you watch the liberal channel. Then you want to know the one that intentionally is making up the lies, whatever channel that may be. We won't get specific in here. All right? But there are all sorts of channels. And now to try to find out the truth, you're trying to take a little bit of this, and you're trying to take a little bit of that, and you're saying, what is going on? It's not being presented fairly. Denzel Washington, I love what he said recently. He was upset with the media. And when they interviewed him, you could see he was visibly upset. He says, well, you know, he goes, if you don't read the news, if you don't watch the news, he goes, you're uninformed. He goes, the problem is, you watch the news and you're misinformed. And so the, 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 the writer looked at the, the, uh, the interviewer looked at him and he said, well, what do you do? He goes, that seems to be the problem now, doesn't it? That seems to be the problem, doesn't it? All right, because we take a look outside and we don't know what the truth is anymore. How sad, church. How sad. It's as sad as Pontius Pilate having the truth right in front of him and looking at Jesus Christ, the creator of heaven and earth, right there, right in front of him, and looking at Jesus and saying, what is truth? And you've got to think that Jesus is saying, bro, huh, I'm right here. I'm right here. And as sad as that is, so many times we have the truth right in front of us. He wants to tell us what to do. He wants to reveal who he is, but we don't want to hear it. Why? Because the truth is suppressed in unrighteousness, according to the book of Romans. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So we let our false mindsets blind us, cover up, 
make us callous to the truth that's right in front of us. The truth of creation we deny through evolution. But the truth also of the fact that you are made in God's image, we deny the miracle of that. Augustine said this in his confessions. He said, Men go abroad to admire the heights of mountains, the mighty waves of the sea, the broad tides of rivers, the compass of the ocean, and the circuits of the stars, yet pass over the mystery of themselves without a thought. You have His truth right in front of you. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He's our truth. But He's also our life. Anything, anytime that we understand that we've been separated from God, we understand that death comes with that separation. We understand that sin comes from that separation. We don't accept Him as being the only way. Because what about all of the other people that haven't heard the truth? What does that mean? Does that mean that they're damned to hell? Are you concerned about that? Are you concerned about the people that haven't heard? And how many have you told? If you're that concerned about what happens to the people, if that's your argument against God, then how many people have you told about the hope that lies within your own heart? Let me ask you something. If you went to a doctor and you needed surgery, and this doctor said, you know what, I think that we... I think that we need to remove your right arm. You want to go to second opinion. You go to the next doctor. The doctor says, well, no, I think actually we need to remove your left arm. Okay. Which one do you choose? Neither one of them, right? You choose the one you want to know. You want the right answer, don't you? And, and are you being narrow if you demand the right answer? Well, which arm? Is it going to be the right arm or is it going to be the left arm? You get on a plane with a pilot, and the pilot says, listen, he goes, here's what we're going to do. I'm just going to take you wherever I feel like taking you today. Okay? No. You paid for your ticket. You want to go to your destination. When we went to, the, to see the, the uh, St. Lucie Mets play the other night, I was psyched. I was pumped because I went on the Internet to see Tim Tebow. I'm like, I'm going to take my son to see Tim Tebow. We got third row tickets, third row and back of the catcher. Right? Back of home plate, behind the fence to keep the kids safe. So we're behind the fence, third row, and I went on the internet and I painstakingly looked at all the different seats that were available. And I chose the seats and I printed out the tickets. And I went strutting into the stadium with my kids and I'm so proud, kind of like Clark W. Griswold. I'm going down there and uh, I see somebody sitting in my seat. Oh, no, no, no. All right. No, I've got my, it's not Calvary time. I've got my Calvary Chapel shirt on. I've got my Calvary Chapel Delray shirt on. I'm like, okay, that's, that's supposed to be our seat, sir. He said, you must not have read the ticket. It's general seating. I said, what? He said, it's general admissions. And he didn't say it very nicely. And so there was that part of me that was like, okay, praise the Lord. Okay, and we found seats, a couple of seats back. So it, was, it didn't turn out to be a big deal. We got there early enough. But the point is this, and consider it. We picked our seats specifically, and you got there, and it was general seating. Now, what if you got to heaven, and now everybody's there, everybody got to go to heaven, no matter what they believed, and your Savior was silly enough to die on a cross for you? Does that make any sense to you whatsoever? So Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. As we look at this, um, one of the things that stuck out to me when I was looking at this passage was that through the trouble, Jesus is revealing Himself as the solution, the way. Some of you are looking for a way in your life right now. We're not going to do our typical altar call today. We're going to do something a little different, and I want to start what we're going to do by telling you about a man that was very special to me in my life. It was my senior year in 1990, in the month of May, when my grandfather, um, we got a phone call. Uh, we were at the dinner table, and my grandfather did not make it home from work. And my 
Grandmother called my mom up. She was concerned, and they could not find him. A couple of minutes later, I got a phone call from my mother. Uh, we got a phone call from my grandmother that my grandfather had had a heart attack right by his mailbox on the side of the road, and he was brought over to JFK Hospital. Now, I was about 17, 18 at the time. It was my first loss, and I was home alone handling this. My parents had gone to the hospital together, and it was crushing. And it was crushing because this man was the glue in our family. All right, every Saturday, our whole family would get together, and we would, you know, his sons and daughters would come together. And when he died, that was done. That was done. Some family members went this way. Some went this way. Some went the other way. And I'll never forget driving to his funeral because this song came on. Um, we're not going to play it. We're going to play it in a second. But I want to read you the lyrics to it. Um, it's by a group called Simon and Garfunkel. And when you're weary... Feeling low. When tears are in your eyes, I will dry them all. Have you heard this song? I'm on your side. Oh, when times get rough. And friends just can't be found. Like a bridge over troubled water, I will lay me down. When you're down and out, when you're on the street, when evening falls so hard, I will comfort you. I'll take your part. Oh, when darkness comes and pain is all around like a bridge over troubled water, I will lay me down. Like a bridge over troubled water, I will lay me down. And I thought, wow, Grandpa was kind of like our bridge. You see, he was a knockdown, drag out drunk, my Grandpa. And he got saved, and what changed his life was a Billy Graham crusade. He got saved at a Billy Graham crusade, turned his life around, and he was taking his family to he would take his family to church every Sunday. Big real estate guy up in New York, but when he moved down here, just couldn't seem to make it. He was saying, selling light bulbs in uh, Palm Beach Post at the end of his life, driving a small car. He'd always had a big Lincoln Town car. But what he had was his family, and he was the bridge, and he pointed them towards Jesus. And what I ended up realizing was this: is that we have a bridge over troubled water in our lives. And that is our Savior, Jesus Christ. Some of you here have found that bridge. Some of you are still trying. But through whatever challenge it is that you're going through today, well, if you've found that bridge, we're meant to help each other over the bridge, not hinder each other in that walk.